Let's look to the Lord in prayer before we look to his word. Lord, we thank you that you're revealing God. You've shown us uh, propositional truth that you want us to know in the word of God. I pray, Lord, that the spirit of God in these moments would take the word of God and apply it to the hearts of the children of God, that we would become more like the son of God. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name together. Amen. I think we're all pretty quick to exercise our rights. Uh, We have a cash register receipt, so we want a refund. We pay VAT taxes, so fix the potholes in the roads. We're in our lane, so don't cross your lane into our lane. We voted for you, so phone us back. We're entitled to a quiet evening on the patio, so turn your music down. I won't speak to anybody until I speak to my lawyer. Hopefully you don't have to say that. (laughs) Rights are pretty ingrained in us and in our thinking. Bill Gothard, a seminar speaker of years gone by, had an interesting viewpoint on Christians and personal rights. He teaches that anger is the symptom of an unyielded right. Anger is a symptom of an unyielded right, according to Gothard. He teaches that Christians must voluntarily yield up our personal rights because our Savior did so. And that brings us to Christmas. Christmas isn't about rights demanded. Quite the opposite. Christmas is about rights set aside. Christmas is about rights set aside. The rights of God who became human. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 with me. Christmas isn't about rights demanded. Christmas, on contrary, is about rights yielded up. And Philippians 2, 1 to 11 is the classic scripture text on divine rights being voluntarily set aside by Jesus Christ. You know, really something had to give. Infinite God was stuffed into the package of finite humanity. Something had to give. And that something was the use of Christ's rights as God. Jesus could have known the timing of his second coming, but he set aside that knowledge to become man. Jesus could have destroyed Satan in the wilderness when Satan was tempting him, but he laid aside the use of that power. He laid it down. Jesus could have called a thousand angels to rescue him from that cruel cross, but to do his father's will, he set aside the right to command the angels. Jesus could have set up his kingdom, avoiding the cross, but he did his father's will instead. Not my will, but thine be done, he said. Yes, church family, when God is stuffed into a human package, something has to give. And the theological word for what gives is kenosis. Kenosis. It's Greek for emptying. Kenosis is Greek for emptying. We see the word in our passage in Philippians 2 and verse 7. Would you see that with me? Philippians 2, 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The NIV translation translates kenosis. He made himself nothing. The New King James Version translates kenosis, emptied himself. The Amplified Bible paraphrases kenosis, stripped himself. The Greek scholar Kenneth Weiss' expanded translation of the New Testament translates kenosis, he 
Himself he emptied, himself he made void. Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, the message, paraphrases kenosis is this way. He set aside the privileges of deity. He set aside the privileges of deity. Kenosis is a Christmas word. Jesus did this to himself. Jesus emptied himself for himself. God the Father didn't do this to the Son. God the Holy Spirit didn't do this for the Son of God. Jesus' parents didn't do this on behalf of their boy. The disciples didn't do this to their master. And Jesus' enemies, the Pharisees, didn't do this to the Lord either. No, Jesus made himself nothing. Jesus emptied himself. This fact makes the kenosis all the more impressive. Dr. David Lowry, Greek professor at Dallas Seminary, defines kenosis this way. Christ did not avail himself of his own resources, but worked his miracles in dependence upon God the Father and through the Holy Spirit. So let's pick up the whole passage in Philippians 2, shall we? I'm going to read eventually through 1 through 11, but I'm going to pause periodically and make some comments. So we're in Philippians 2, starting at verse 1. If, therefore, there is any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Friends, because the Lord Jesus had no selfish ambition, he emptied himself to accomplish the first Christmas. And still in verse 3, because the Lord Jesus Christ had no vain conceit, he made himself nothing to visit earth as a baby. And still with verse 3, because the Lord Jesus Christ exists, existed in humility, he left heaven, stepped across the stars and planetary bodies that he made by the word of his mouth to come to the dusty tennis wall we call earth, full of rebels, an earth that was full of rebels. Now let's look at verses 5 to 8 of our passage. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Exactly what was our Lord's attitude before, during, and after the Bethlehem miracle of the Incarnation? What was his attitude? Our Jesus was not grabby with respect to using his rights as creator God. I see that in verse 6. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Going on, our Jesus willingly consciously made himself nothing with respect to using all of his rights and powers as deity. I see that in verse 7. 
This is the kenosis, the self-emptying miracle of the incarnation. See it in verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. But there's more. Jesus was not grabby with respect to using his rights as creator. Jesus was willing to consciously make himself nothing with respect to using all his rights and powers. Thirdly, Jesus was a volunteer for being human who was a servant and not a king. He served as a servant king who served his subjects. What king ever has done that? Thousands of, thousands of babies have become kings, but only one king became a baby. Verse seven again, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. But that's not all either. Our Jesus involved, was involved in self-humbling. I see that in verse eight. This self-humbling involved total obedience to his father and total obedience to the father culminated in death, but not just any death, death on the cross, Roman crucifixion, death on the cross. Verse 8, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There was a father who had a seven-year-old son who needed to go to the restroom at a restaurant. He took his son into the restroom, and there was a Marine, U.S. Marine, with his son about the same age. And... The seven-year-old who entered the restroom with his daddy turned to the Marine soldier and said, be sure, wipe your, wipe your son's hands off, dry his hands off. And the father said, you don't tell a grown-up what to do. And the Marine said, it's okay. I follow orders, that's my job. <laughs> he could have, he could have made a big scene out of it, but this soldier was accustomed to submitting to authority, was accustomed to emptying himself of his rights. Jesus did it perfectly. And so kenosis is a very important Christmas word. I want to unpack kenosis a little further with you quickly. When we say that the Lord Jesus made himself nothing and emptied himself, what do we mean? We mean at least five things. You ready in your outlines to follow? At least five things we mean when we say that Jesus made himself nothing and emptied himself. Number one, kenosis means that Jesus gave up his heavenly glory while on earth. That is to say, he set aside his own enjoyment of face-to-face -face interchange with his father while he was on earth. John 17, 5, these are Jesus' words in praying to his father before the cross. John 17, 5, and now glorify thou me together with thyself, Father, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Kenosis means that Jesus gave up his heavenly glory while on earth, but there's more. Secondly, kenosis means that Jesus gave up his independent authority while on earth. Jesus gave up his independent authority while on the earth. Matthew 26, verse 39 speaks of this. The context here is that Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane before the cross. And Matthew 26, 39 says, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. 
The kenosis meant that Jesus gave up his independent authority while on earth. Thirdly, kenosis means that Jesus gave up his divine prerogatives while he was on the earth. Jesus gave up his divine prerogatives while he was on the earth. That is to say, he voluntarily set aside the ability to display his divine attributes. He willingly submitted himself to God, the Holy Spirit's direction. And when Jesus did, during his earthly ministry, display his divine power, it was because the Father okayed it and the Holy Spirit directed it to completion. Matthew 24, 36, the context here is Jesus, having been asked the timing of his return to the earth, answered, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. The kenosis means incredibly that Jesus gave up the use of some of his divine prerogatives when he was on the earth to accomplish, accomplish your redemption, to be your Savior. Fourthly, kenosis means that Jesus gave up his earth, eternal rather, riches while he was on the earth. Jesus gave up his eternal riches while he was on the earth. Think about it. I mean, those who preach that it's a prosperity gospel, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise if you only trust Jesus to be your Savior. And if you don't, you really lack faith. That's not the true gospel. Jesus was homeless. Jesus Christ was homeless on earth. He had very few earthly possessions. They gambled over them at the foot of his cross. He was reliant. The king of glory emptied himself to the degree that he was reliant on the free will cash offerings of followers of him while he was on earth to fund his ministry. Talk about humble. Jesus gave up his earthly riches while he was on the earth. Second Corinthians 8, 9. Let it, let it wash over you. May it not be business as usual as I read these verses. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Wow. But there's more. The kenosis means that Jesus gave up his favorable relationship with his father on those hours as he bore your sins and mine on the cruel cross. He willingly, for a season, while he bore the sins of the world, lived with and accepted a break in his favorable eternal relationship and fellowship with his father. That's why nature was sympathetic and the midday sky in Palestine went jet black as night. That's why the earthquakes happened in Jerusalem. They were so severe that the dead's graves were opened and God resurrected them to life again because the sinless son of God, the eternal son of God in his kenosis was willing to set aside for those hours on the cross while he bore your sin and mine, his perfect, unbroken, intimate relationship with his holy father. Matthew 27, 46. Jesus, in physical, emotional, and spiritual agony on the cross, cried out about the ninth hour, noon. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani! My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
because he was bearing our sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He, that is God the Father, made him, that is God the Son, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, Christ. That's a lot, church family. The self-emptying of Jesus Christ is a big deal. And he did it for you. He did it for me. Because of love and because of obedience to his Father. While on earth, the Lord Jesus, our precious Savior, willingly gave up his heavenly glory, his independent authority, his divine prerogatives, his eternal riches, and his favorable relationship with his Father. Major Ian Thomas, some of you maybe of a, a more mature age remember that name, the torchbearers out of Carnforth, England. Uh, Major Ian Thomas said this, and I quote, Imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, who was never less than God, walking on this earth as though he were nothing more than man. How different than us, we who are never more than man, treading this globe as though we're nothing less than God. Ouch. Imagine... Ian Thomas said, imagine the Lord Jesus Christ, who was never less than God, walking on this earth as always with nothing more than man, and how different than us who are never more than man, treading this globe as though we are nothing less than God. May we repent. Kind of makes me giving up any rights to Jesus <laughs> uh, nothing. Same for you. True story, Josh McDowell tells it. All right, gang, the youth director told the kids who had gathered for their church's annual youth group rake fest, remember that you not only represent our church, but you represent Jesus Christ too. Be sure you do what you do, do what Jesus would do and act the way that Jesus would act. He read Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Then he prayed and then he said amen and the church group erupted in cheers. I love doing this, Amy told Martha as they pulled into, they pulled in their minivan uh, to go rake neighbors' lawns. It's so much fun. I do too, Martha agreed. I love seeing the looks on the old, older person's faces when we rake their yards for free. Amy and Martha and three other kids were driven by one of the kids' parents to a nearby neighborhood. They had ordered to stop at a house across the street from First Church, their church's rival, a church that always seemed to beat their church in volleyball and softball and even Sunday school contests. They spent over an hour raking the leaves for an elderly woman who lived across the street from that church. And then they went on to do other yards. When they gathered together back at the church, their youth leader asked them how it went. It was so much fun, Amy said. Yeah, Martha agreed. Then she laughed and added, when we, after we got done raking that first lady's yard, the lady who lived there invited us in for some cider. Yeah, Amy said, and she kept thanking us and telling us how wonderful we were and how much she appreciated all of us kids from first church. She thought you were from First Church, the youth leader said. What did she say when you told her you were from our church? Martha and Amy exchanged glances. We didn't, they said, smiling. Why not, asked the youth leader. The girl shrugged. You said to do what Jesus would do, Martha said. We decided that Jesus would have been humble enough to let First Church get the credit. So we didn't say anything. <laughs> That's it. That's what we're talking about. So let's make this personal. Let's make this very personal. What can you be self-emptying yourself of? The credit, like the leaf rakers. The profit of the transaction. 
popularity? Could you be self-emptying yourself of the credit for the job, the profit for the transaction, the popularity of the crowd? Could you be self-emptying yourself on being understood? Do you always have to be understood? Jesus wasn't understood. Could you empty yourselves of the congratulations? Could you empty yourself of the compliments? Could you empty yourself of your rights? Jesus did. Could you empty yourself of your reputation? Could you empty yourself of your dignity? Could you empty yourself of appearances, what people think of you? Could you empty yourself? Fenlon wrote, humility is the source of all true greatness. Pride is ever impatient, ready to be offended. He who thinks nothing is due to him never thinks himself ill-treated. I got to read that again. Look up here if you're not looking up here. Humility is the source of all true greatness. Pride is ever impatient, ready to be offended. Who thinks, he who thinks he has nothing due to him never thinks himself ill-treated. Could you self-empty? Kenosis is a Christmas word. Christ's self-emptying is at the very heart of Christmas. Christ's self-emptying is at the very heart of Christmas. J.I. Packer fine-tunes this notion of the Christmas spirit when he writes this. We talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this than sentimental jollity. It ought to mean the reproducing in human lives of the temperament of him for who our sakes became poor. The spirit of those who, like their master, lived their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow man, giving time, care, thought, and concern to do good to others in whatever way there seems need. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. My favorite hymn. And can it be has a lovely stanza emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all immense and free for, oh, my God, it found out me. It found out me. Now watch now we're wrapping this up. We're going to land the airplane. Now that you've learned about Christ's kenosis or self-emptying humility, mark it down. You are going to get chances from God to self-empty and be humble starting this afternoon and this week. That's how God works. When his people are taught a truth from his word, he calls us immediately to put it into practice. Count on it. So what will you do with your opportunities to be humble what will you do with them? Well, I'll tell you something. If you will self-humble, there are three huge benefits. Here we go to close this sermon. Number one, if you will self-humble, three good things will happen. Number one, others will learn humility from you. If you will self-humble, others will learn humility from you. 
Bill, a college student, was a new Christian, according to the author Rebecca Manley Pippert. One Sunday, he visited a church near campus. He walked in barefoot, was wearing a T-shirt and jeans. The service had already started, so he walked down the aisle looking for a seat. Finding none, he sat down cross-legged on the floor right in front of the pulpit. The congregation became noticeably uneasy. Then from the back of the church, an elderly deacon got up with his cane and slowly shuffled his way to the front. Every eye followed him. The minister paused and there was a total silence. As the old gentleman approached Bill cross-legged, he dropped his cane and with great effort lowered himself and sat down beside him on the floor so the young men wouldn't have to worship alone. Many in the congregation were deeply moved. Paul wrote that Christ, being equal with God, set aside his reputation and became obedient unto death, ultimate death of humility. Why? To come to us in our loneliness, to forgive our sins, to teach us a new way to live and to worship. And when we learn to think as Jesus thought, we see people as, through the same eyes as that godly deacon. May we learn to humble ourselves for the benefit of others. So yes, if you will self-humble, the first good thing that's going to happen is others will learn humility. Second, the second thing that will happen is we will be spared the dangers of being willful and proud. If we will self-humble, we will be spared the dangers of being willful and proud. Another illustration. God protects his own. True story. We know that 80% of the town of Melha in Akka was destroyed by the tsunami waves and 80% of the people also died. This is one of the towns that was hit the hardest. But there is a fantastic testimony from this island town where there were about 400 Christians. They wanted to celebrate Christmas on December 25th but were not allowed to do so by the Muslims of that town. They were told that if they wanted to celebrate Christmas they needed to go outside of the city on a high hill and there celebrate Christmas. Because the Christians desired to celebrate Christian Christmas, the 400 believers left the city on December 25th. After they had celebrated Christmas, they stayed overnight on the hill. As we all know, the morning of December 26th, there was an earthquake followed by a tsunami, and waves were destroying most of that city and country, and thousands and thousands were killed. The 400 believers who were on the mountains were all saved from destruction. Now. The Muslims of that city are saying that the God of the Christians punished us for forbidding the Christians from celebrating Christmas in the city. Others are questioning why so many Muslims died while not even one Christian died there. Had the Christians insisted on their right to celebrate Christmas in the city, they would all have died. But because they humbled themselves and followed the advice of the Muslims of all people, they were spared destruction and now can testify of God's marvelous protection as the country mops up and cleans up and tries to come back. The Lord Almighty commits our ways to be his ways. He is the father and very capable to care for his children. Last benefit, if you will self-humble first, Others will learn humility. Second, will be spared the dangers of being willful and proud. And third and last, the lost will be reached for Jesus. The lost will be reached for Jesus. Illustration to close. He was a distinguished-looking gentleman, impeccably tailored suits 
and a head of lush salt and pepper hair made the man stand out. Each day he could be seen with his son passing through the halls of Boston's New England Medical Center on their visits to the chemotherapy center. A secretary whose station happened to be on their daily route through the hospital admired the man and his smiling five-year-old wondering which one was receiving the treatments. Then one day as they passed her by, her attention was drawn to the boy. The cap he usually wore was missing, revealing a shiny bald head, and then to her surprise, however, the father was as bald as his son. As they neared the place where the woman worked, the boy cheerfully exclaimed, Look at my dad. He shaved his head so that we could look the same. We're going to grow our hair back together. His father simply smiled, continued on his walk, looking more distinguished than ever. The sacrifice of that loving father illustrates the kind of sacrifice that is required to reach the lost, those without Jesus as Savior. We could call it the sacrifice of identification. It was what Jesus did when he left heaven to become a man. It is what Paul did in becoming all things to all men. It is what we must do as well. Sacrifice to identify with the lost. Identification with the ones we're trying to reach for Christ is a difficult sacrifice to make and one which far too often we refuse to make. Rubbing shoulders with non-Christians should not be uncomfortable unless they're trying to lead us into sin. Do you have lost friends that you can walk across the bridges of commonality that are not against God? Minor sports, fishing, swimming, softball, hobbies, crafts. Do you have lost friends that you can self-sacrifice time and walk across those bridges without compromising your testimony for Jesus, but to rub shoulders with them as it were to shave your head bald so that you will not fail to have compassion the one who is bald through cancer treatment. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for self-emptying. Thank you that kenosis is a Christmas word. Teach us the lessons that you want us to retain. May we not come away from this sermon and say, boy, I feel smarter, but rather may we come away from this sermon saying, boy, I want to be more like my Jesus. And we pray this in his name and for his sake. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you.